Try Jupiter Organic CBD. It helps relax your mind and body for better and deeper sleep. Jupiter Organic CBD is designed to work like an off button for your daily stress. And no, you will not get high, maybe in your dreams. You can try Jupiter by going to getjupiter.com and using promo code ASMR for 10% off. That's getjupiter.com, promo code ASMR, and enjoy a 10% discount. Chapter 2 Jacob had to wait several days for the stagecoach to leave. The stage went only once a week to Val di Scodra, or rather, it went above it, along a mountain road, far to the border. High above the village, it halted and left a few packages and letters. Someone was accustomed to waiting there and carrying the things down to the valley. Don't take the stage, the head waiter advised him. Go in our motor car. We arrange for excursions every few days at the height of the season. As soon as there are enough people to go, then you can have the car stop at Val di Scodra and let you out. But will the car be able to take my trunks? asked Jacob. Why not? said the waiter. It's a very powerful car. 64 horsepower. It'll take seven or eight hours to get there by stage, but the car can make it in less than two. Very well, then. The car climbed into the mountains on long, dusty, and winding roads. The tourists chattered and laughed, determined to enjoy the expensive expedition with all their might. A fat gentleman from Dresden had studied his geography closely, and proudly he called every new mountain peak, every waterfall, by name. Whenever an ox cart passed, whenever a sharp curve showed the steep declivity clearly, the ladies in the car screamed, and the honeymoon couple, sitting in front, moved more closely together, as though it was romantic. Jacob stared at the landscape, indifferent and bored. He didn't speak a word. Do you see, over there on the right, rises the Monte Terlago, his neighbor explained to him. But Jacob refused to answer. When the car finally stopped, the chauffeur announced, Here is Val di Scodra. This is where you get out now. The chauffeur jumped down, unstrapped the trunks, and set them on the road. Jacob climbed down as well. Where is the village? he asked. Down there, pointed the chauffeur. It's only a little farther up the road, where one gets a view into the valley. I merely stopped here because the path leads down from here, and it's easier for the car. Jacob looked around. And how am I to get my luggage into the village, then? The chauffeur laughed. I suppose you'll have to let it lie in the road for the present. Just go down into the city and have someone fetch it for you. 
It's safe enough here. And furthermore, there's someone who will watch it. Hey, old woman, the chauffeur cried. Come here a moment. Jacob turned around. He saw an old beggar woman who had stepped up to the car and was holding out her hands towards the travelers. She made no haste, but waited until even the last had given his cruiser. Only then did she approach the chauffeur. Her back had been bent by some disease. She curved forward, tense as a bow, so that her head, with its gray, tangled hair, was scarcely on a higher level than her hips. Her face was twisted towards the left, and she squinted up strangely. Sibylla Madruzzo, cried the chauffeur, come over here. You will watch these trunks by the wayside. This gentleman is going into the village and will have them called for later. That's right, you sit down on them. That'll be best. Jacob gave the old beggar a few nickel coins. How long do you think it'll take me? The old woman moved her lips and raised her short crutch and made strange signs with her fingers. She is dumb, declared the chauffeur, but the path is steep, straight down the hillside. I think you can make it in three quarters of an hour. The chauffeur waved goodbye and jumped back into his car. The car disappeared in thick clouds of dust. Jacob was annoyed, but he descended into the hillside. He was struck by the complete difference in nature here. Only a few hours ago, he had been walking on the shores of Lake Garda, under palm trees. To be sure, they had been consumptive, monotonous, trimmed hotel palms. Yet they were palms all the same. Bushes of bamboo shaded the ornamental lake. Magnolias and broad-leaved bananas grew in their beds. Carefully trimmed pines and excessively thin cypresses arose here and there. At intervals stood a mighty eucalyptus. On the mountain slope, under protective sheds, lemons were growing, and far along the lake extended a plantation of crippled olives. Here, all of that was changed. The south lay far behind him, and spring, which is in full splendor down there by the lake, scarcely dared to knock here with its modest fingers. The narrow path led down steeply. A few goats passed him, seeking the thin grass among the rocks. Then, at a turn of the road, he stood still. Here at last, one got the feel. Jacob looked down from a broad stone. Below him lay a small lake, almost circular in shape. Opposite him, the mountain wall seemed to project steeply up both sides and down 
almost into the water. It looked as if there was scarcely room for a dog to run along the sides. At his feet, the valley expanded a little, and there lay the village. The roofs were scattered irregularly, reddish-brown lumps of weathered tiles. Here a group of houses stood close-packed. Over there stood two, or just one, as the plain permitted. Slowly, the village straggled up the mountain toward the northeast. Far into the background, one last large roof gleamed faintly. In the middle of the village was a small church. A broad path led from it across the brush, covered declivity of the north side, and ran on to a flat projection of rock that hung almost above the lake. This table of stone seemed quite level and free, but at its extreme end it bore three crosses, rising to an enormous height. Upon the tallest, raised slightly and at the middle, hung the Redeemer. At both sides arose the crosses of the thieves. It was probably an image of Calvary. Jacob clearly saw the fourteen stations along the path. He descended slowly, taking in the view. He met a boy who was taking a cow to pasture. Where is Raimondi's inn? he asked the boy. But the boy stared at him as if he were a ghost. He pulled his cow into the thicket by the rope and never looked back. Jacob walked on. Little fields had been cut into the slope. Far below he saw an olive grove. Here and there climbed a few old vines among the clipped willow trees. A man was cultivating the ground with a spade. Where is Raimondi's inn? asked Jacob. This fellow did not stir. He had a broad, hard, beardless face. Stupid and ugly beyond measure, thought Jacob. A cunning, inflexible, peasant smile kept his mouth wide open. Jacob repeated his question. I'm not from hereabouts, the fellow grinned at him. Jacob was growing impatient. What the devil? Surely you know where this inn is. He gave the man a few grocers. There now, lead me to the inn. The man shouldered his spade and walked ahead. Tell me your name, said Jacob. The man grinned back at him, but did not answer. It seems that one must ask you everything twice. I want to know your name, demanded Jacob. Angelo, the man said, but I'm not from hereabouts. I know that already. Where did you come from then? asked Jacob. The fellow raised his spade and pointed to the north. From over there. Then he looked confused. He turned and corrected himself and pointed towards the west. 
No, no, I'm from over there, from Terrazzo. A house lay in front of them, close by the lake. A broad flight of stone steps led to a small veranda. Crimson Rambler crept all over it. But as yet, none of the small red roses were in bloom. The man leaned his spade against the wall and was about to enter the stable through a low side door. Are you in service here? asked Jacob. Yes, I am. But you were supposed to take me to Raimondi's inn. This is it. This? Jacob was incredulous. So this is it? A while ago you pretended not to even know where he lived. The man gave an imbecile laugh. I said I'm not from hereabouts. Then the man stamped into the stable. The happy bleating of a goat greeted him. Jacob mounted the steps, opened a door, and looked into the room. Is anybody here? he called. Anybody at all? He knocked with his fist on the table, but no one came or made a sound. He stepped to the window and looked out across the lake, across the little space in front of the house, across the street. There was not a human being anywhere. He waited a while and grew frustrated, the vein of all of this. Perhaps the stupid farmhand had led him to the wrong house after all. Jacob went outside and wandered through the narrow streets. He passed houses. He passed farms. He looked through some open doors and open windows and stepped into a garden here and there. Nowhere was there a sign of human life in this dead stillness. A solitary, powerful, black dog lay in the road and blinked at him in astonishment. This village is enchanted, said Jacob. From the east, a confused murmur reached him. He went in the direction of it. The houses slowly rose within the mountain here. Soon he could distinguish sounds, a singing, then the long, drawn-out tones of a concertina, and between the staccato thud and clang of tambourine and triangle. The Americans' concert, thought Jacob. So is that where the whole village is assembled today? He considered whether he should go to the meeting, but finally he shook his head. I don't have the energy for this. And Jacob turned around and went back again. Down the lake, far at the opposite end, he saw a boat. At that point, the rocks receded a little, forming a small bay. He saw the reeds at the shoreline, and farther back, a narrow, triangular strip of land. In the background, a mountain torrent leapt down through a crevice, which it hollowed out. It was probably the torrent that had gradually deposited this bit of land, he thought. Jacob saw a girl in the boat, arising 
and bending down again, he saw her lifting baskets from the reeds and carrying them up carefully to one end. Here was one other person then who was not at the meeting, he thought. Up guarding his trunk, the crippled, dumb, old beggar woman, then the little lad with his cow, and Angelo, the farmhand, who, to be sure, was not from hereabouts, and now this girl. At a comfortable pace, Jacob walked toward the lake. On the broad bench in front of the house he had first entered, sat a gray, bearded man in shirt sleeves. He was comfortably bent forward and resting his elbows on a round stone table. Ah, another human, said Jacob, the fifth who was not with Mr. Peter. Jacob laughed to himself. I've done the village wrong. There's still some life in it. Good afternoon, he said to the old man. Are you Peppino Raimondi? The innkeeper got up, mumbled something, and looked at Jacob in surprise. Then he took the pipe from between his teeth and said, where do you come from, sir? Jacob answered, I would like to stay here and live with you for a while. Aren't you Raimondi? Don Vincenzo directed me to you. The innkeeper nodded. Yes, yes, it's fine weather, he said. Jacob looked at him in confusion. Can you give me lodging then? Yes, yes, spring is coming, said the innkeeper. I want to know if you can give me lodging, said Jacob. He was becoming frustrated now. Then it occurred to him that the priest had warned him of the innkeeper's deafness. He did not care to exert himself, so he took a piece of paper and wrote down his wishes. Raimondi took the paper, put on his spectacles, and read slowly, thoughtfully, word for a word. Then Raimondi looked at Jacob over his spectacles and asked, You want to stay for a few months in Val de Scodra, and you want two rooms, and you want to lodge with me. Jacob nodded, but the old innkeeper could not yet get it through his head. You want to stay here? And for months? Is this your serious intention, sir? Jacob shook his head. Yes, yes, this is my intention. Raimondi scratched his head and said, I understand you. If you, will you wait here for just a moment? Raimondi took his coat from the bench and he put it on. And so he continued, and so you're saying you want to stay here for several months. And what do you intend to pay me? How much would you like? Jacob asked. Both went into the house and sat down at the table. The innkeeper began to haggle. What was it the guest demanded? Two rooms? Two indeed. Well, that's what he insisted on. One would have to arrange it. And what did he want for breakfast? Eggs, too. And 
Very well then, eggs it was. It was Jacob's habit to interject a few German words into his speech. So Jacob tried to be careful of this as he was talking to the old man. But even so, the old man understood very little. The man was rambling now that he didn't know much German at all. Once upon a time, oh yes, once upon a time, when he was in the emperor's rifles and his dead wife, she was a German from Brixen. This very pipe here was an heirloom from her father, but his daughter, yes, his daughter Teresa, she did speak German as well, as well as the emperor himself, whom God preserve. Um, can I interrupt you, said Jacob. Someone needs to fetch down my trunks. Oh, trunks, the innkeeper said and mumbled on. He had trunks too. And where were these trunks? Were they up on the public road? Had he come in the motor car? Well, Raimondi said, the manservant would have to go up and fetch them at once. What? Yes. Oh, yes, he's a postmaster too. Raimondi opened a drawer and lifted out a handful of postcards and a sheet of stamps. Do you see? This is the post office of Valdi Skodra. Then he went to the window and called out to his man. Angelo, Angelo, put the pack saddle on the mule and don't forget the ropes. You must fetch down the trunks that are standing in the road. The old woman is watching them. His fellow nodded and went to the stable as ordered. Tell me, asked Jacob, why aren't you at the meeting? He grinned. I'm not from hereabouts. You too, really? So no one's from hereabouts. Jacob laughed to himself. This was a very strange village indeed. Then he followed the old man up the stairs as he was led to his rooms. Raimondi thrust open several doors. There are enough rooms in the house, he said. Which ones do you want, sir? There were three rooms on the side toward the lake, but one of them seemed inhabited. The other two were almost empty. Jacob chose the first one and the joining one next to it. Who lives here? he asked. He saw a picture of the Mother of God with a little vessel of holy water at the right and a little perpetual lamp at the left. Fresh boxed tree twigs adorned the frame. My daughter, the landlord replied, but she will have to move out. I suppose, said Jacob. He helped Raimondi carry the girl's possessions into the third room. Then he arranged the furniture to suit himself. Go into all of the rooms, said the old man, and take whatever you want. Jacob went downstairs and up again, gathering whatever he liked. He moved an old armchair to the window and pushed little blocks of wood under the legs of a shaky table. He also brought in a small wire basket, which he intended to use for waste paper. There, carry the clock out, he said to the landlord, and pointed to the old wall clock above the door. 
But why? asked the old man. I don't like a clock in the room, answered Jacob. Neither a clock nor a calendar. To be constantly aware of the date and the hour. That is not my way of living. But it isn't even running, the old man said. Not running, asked Jacob. Then it may stay, I suppose. How about a lamp? Yes, there's a lamp too. I'll get it. After the old man brought the lamp in, Jacob felt settled. Although, could I have some water, he asked. The landlord went down and filled a large jug. He did not carry them up himself, but gave them to his man, who had just returned with the mule from the mountain. Angelo dragged the jugs up, then the trunks and the bags. Jacob began to unpack, swiftly and skillfully. This wasn't a custom task. He was done before the sun sank. He washed himself and went down. In the guest room, a stout, heavily mustached imperial border guard sat next to the landlord, drinking in mighty draughts from a wicker-covered bottle. To your health, he called out to Jacob. Thank you, said Jacob. The guard blew his nose. Do you know, it was a sensible idea of yours to come, said the guard. But he hesitated at finishing his sentence, laughed, drank again. The idea didn't seem so sensible after all. Anyhow, it's pretty fine, he continued. Pretty fine. What did I tell you, Raimondi? He roared at the landlord. What did I tell you? If those praying brethren won't come, somebody else will. And here he is. I hardly believed it myself, but there he is. It's come true. And you'll make money on him. More money than all those devil hunters put together. Jacob listened attentively. Then who? he asked. Then the devil hunters, the guard laughed. You must know that this crazy village has an American in it. Yes, I do know, said Jacob. I've heard about him. But they call themselves devil hunters? Yes, sir, the guard affirmed. Because they want to drive the devil out and exterminate him root and branch with their praying and singing. These Italian fools. Well, if I were here, things would be different. Right, Raimondi? Laughing, he nudged the landlord in the belly. I hunt the devil, too, but in a better way. He lifted his glass high. Come here, you red old alcohol devil. We're not afraid of you. He emptied the glass at one draft and set it down ringing on the table. Then he wiped his mustache. So, that the little devil's done for, right, Ramondi? We're the true devil hunters. Wait a moment, said Jacob. Are you saying these people don't drink? Not a drop, said the guard. They pretend to be pious Christians, and yet they declare the wine which our Lord himself made to grow, a work of the devil. Why, old Noah sauced himself to the brim every day, 
and was a patriarch for all of that. It's been two months since any of these fellows has set foot in our inn. I'm the old man's only guest, and a poor one at that, for I want you to know that I don't pay. He coughed in over-hasty laughter. Just drink, drinker, said the landlord with a sigh. Surely one must keep one's cellar open for an old comrade from the regiment. Well, you needn't go on about it, said the guard. It's rarely enough that I come to the village. Every three weeks, for a few hours, whenever it's possible, the damned smugglers give no one rest in the mountains. Then a gleam of light shone in through the door, which a young girl was opening. She carried two large candles into the guest room and placed them on the table. Is that your daughter? Jacob asked the landlord. Yes, that is Teresa, his daughter, said the guard. A good girl, come here, Teresa. But the girl turned around and immediately went out again without speaking a word. Bring in the food, her father called after her. Our guests are hungry. Teresa returned after a little while, spread the table with a white linen, and set it. Then she served the supper. Jacob bade her a good evening, but she barely nodded or looked at him. Nor did she sit down at the table. Instead, she took her seat on a bench at the other window and took out her sewing. Jacob watched her. She was tall, well-grown and slender, about twenty years old. Her hair, like her father's, was black. Her large eyes were blue. One could see that her mother had been German. Jacob called to her and asked her to give him some more bread. She brought the bread, but she did not answer any questions. She looked at him with wide, distrustful eyes and went back to her seat by the window. He ate and drank and chatted with the guard while Raimondi sat next to him and smoked his pipe in silence. Jacob observed the beautiful girl and clearly noted how, now and again, swiftly and surreptitiously, she threw a questioning glance at him. Then he saw how she drew a letter from her pocket read it, and while doing so again, glanced at him. Jacob thought to himself, So, the letter the postman brought this evening was for you, my child, and it is most certainly from Don Vincenzo, your father confessor, and he warns you against me, my child, and that's the reason you're so distrustful. He smiled to himself and thought, how stupid you are, old man. I would not have looked at her, nor touched her, your poor little penitent. But now, why do you tempt me? You are so old, and yet still do not know that one desires only the forbidden. And between you and me, you poor old man, what an unequal struggle for this child. And oh, how stupid of you. Jacob looked at her again and desired her 
at once. Her forehead was straight and not high. It receded at the temples. The thick black eyebrows curved over her deep blue eyes. Her eyes were shadowed by long lashes, and the nostrils of her straight nose fluttered and trembled at each breath. Her mouth seemed a little too large, and her lips, fully rounded, glowed like vigorous pomegranate blossoms on her wax-pale face. A humility, a silent gentleness, lay on her soft features, but beneath that some other power seemed to slumber. Perhaps it was something in the nature of genius, Jacob thought. This girl might become an excellent artist someday. Something amazing, he observed how her breasts rose and fell in her confining corsage. He undressed her with lustful eyes, tore the kerchief from her neck and the heavy silver girdle from her waist. Suddenly she caught his glance. Her face blossomed red. Shame made her close her eyes. But then she opened them with sudden hatred. Her hands trembled. She rose stood for a moment and replaced the letter in her pocket. Then she turned and swiftly, with firm steps, crossed the room. The door slammed noisily behind her. Jacob stared after her, slowly. The wild, lustful expression disappeared from his face. His lips relaxed and his eyes resumed their gentle dreaminess. What a poor, beautiful child, he murmured. Then he passed his hand through his hair and shook his head energetically, as if he wanted to drive his thoughts away. I want to sing, he shouted. Go on, Raimondi, bring us the best wine you have. Jacob hurried to his room took the guitar from the wall and returned. To your health, Hera drank her. He touched glasses with the guard and then with the landlord. It's a good thing that there are few people in the village again who know what wine is good for. Will you wager with me that I can drink you under the table? Bravo, the guard laughed. But you better not wager with me, man. You do not know my capacity. Jacob laughed at this. And they began to drink. Ah, oh, but I can't help but wager, said Jacob. I'm going to wager your helmet against my guitar. My helmet? Yes, are you afraid? Aye, but my dear sir, do you accept? asked Jacob. I accept, said the guard. The guard growled at this and lifted his glass. He got up with a slow thoughtfulness, loosened the belt from his large body, and placed his heavy saber in a corner. Now then, Jacob turned to his guitar 
What would you like to hear? It's all the same to me, said the guard. Sing whatever you can. Jacob sang body student songs, then suggestive ballads which he had picked up in the dives, and soldier songs bristling with coarse allusions. Enthusiastically, the guard joined in the chorus. His supply seemed inexhaustible. The reverses of the Neapolitan street singers, oozing filth, Andalusian coppolas, the melancholy melodies of which more strikingly emphasized their obscene contents. Sailors' songs which, like the cry of the captain monkeys in heat, roared after female flesh. Verses from Montmartre, in which the words and tune were skillfully blended in cynical indecencies. The landlord understood very little but he was happy and quietly hummed some of the melodies. He sucked his glass and his pipe. The guard roared with laughter and brought down his broad fist on the table so that the bottles danced and clinked. And he shouted the chorus, She comes without her dead lover or any coins through the dusty, dusty forest. He emptied one glass after another. Jacob drank with him glass for glass. Smiling and calm, he poured the wine down as if it were limpid water. He always emptied a glass at one draft. Then he touched the strings again. In Hamburg, that's where I am, wrapped in velvet and silks. I lost my virtue here. Because I am a girl for money. My sister, she always writes me, Dear Oma, oh, come back. Your mother lies dying in her bed. She mourns your miserable fate, he sang. My sister, I always write her back. Dear sister, I cannot return. I lost my virtue long ago. There is no happiness that waits for me at home. But in Hamburg, that's where I am, wrapped in velvet and silks. I am well off even if I lost my virtue here, because I am a girl for money. Jacob sang the songs of harlots, stale, sentimental ditties, which peddled out emotions as if they were honey cakes at a village fair. Hairdranker sobbed and clutched in his throat and sighed and took a deep, long drink after each song. Listen, guard, said Jacob. I'll sing you the song of the dance hall harlots. It goes like this. Yesterday evening in the storm, I went around by the red tower and then when a flush of sentimentality rose high in the guard's red neck and thick drops almost blinded his bleary eyes, Jacob flung bright, ironic, impudent stanzas in his face. Girls with breasts so firm and white, why shouldn't I lust after them? I'm so young like a monkey, and my father was a priest.
the guard grinned and seemed all puffed up with pleasure. He peered around with his drunken eyes, as if a plump wench were standing near, as if he wished to caress her firm breasts with his stubby red hands. Drink, you swine, called Jacob. The guard leaped up. The blood rose into his face, dark blue from the rage and shame. But he met a calm, smiling glance. He shrank back. To your health, he said, and he drank. Jacob drank with him again and again. He laid the guitar down on the bench and drank. A few more bottles, he said. No, no, we've had enough, stammered the guard. Enough, so soon. Go fetch us some wine, Raimondi. The landlord arose. Holding himself erect with difficulty, he groped around himself. He wandered to the cellar for the eighth time that night. He came back and set the bottles on the table. He himself did not sit down again. Silently, without a good night, he tottered out of the room. He went over into his own room, and one could hear how heavily he dropped onto his bed. The other two drank on. It seemed as if Jacob were only now beginning. He raised his glass with such pleasant ease. They didn't talk anymore. They just drank. No, no, I can't have more, murmured the guard. Drink, demanded Jacob. If you're the kind of fellow I took you for. He pressed the full glass into the man's hand, and the guard emptied it, sipping slowly, belching between drafts. His arm fell. The glass shattered against the table's edge and heavily his huge head dropped forward. Jacob laughed at this. He got up, took his guitar, and stepped to the window. Melancholy clouds swam here and there in the sky. From among them, the narrow new moon shed a faint light across the lake. Silently, he sat for a long time on the window bench, Almost unconsciously, he took up the instrument and touched the strings gently. Tones came and soft chords, and songs grew anew out of the dreamy notes and out of his voice, which trembled gently and heavy-heartedly into the stillness of the night. They were Breton songs, songs born of the sea, Born of the loneliness, born of great longing. He began to sing softly. The cliffs of Painful and I, the old bell tower, my atonement. I much prefer the cliffs of Brighton, waiting for me at home. And somewhere, a wall of rock gave back to him a whispered echo waiting for me at home. The words lay in his ear, insistently, with quiet, music-like 
the tone of an old music box. He listened to this melody as to a silent, hidden truth which slumbers under stones and ivy. Brittany, that was it. Brittany and the Tyrol, yes. And suddenly he understood quite instinctively. He found the absolute certainty of that after which he had groped for and sought and the doubtful investigations of long years. A great possession came to him at that moment, a firm faith in the last link of a long chain of new ideas. Yes, quite assuredly now he would be able to work. How difficult this whole matter had been only yesterday. There was tremendous material, brought together with such infinite care, from endless journeys and a thousand books, confused, inextricable almost, a huge labyrinth of fantastic hypotheses. Now he saw the way, now he held the goal in his hand. It seemed like a ball to be tossed up, and then caught again without fail. He was conscious of victory. He would have liked to thank someone for this faith which the moment gave him. Almost aloud, he said, There are no Germans. There are no Slavs. There are no Latins. There are no Celts and no Jews. And neither Greeks, nor Albanians, nor Armenians. That is all nonsense, stupid, trite, historic, all lies. There are only three races in Europe. The Nordic, long-skulled, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, my race. And then the Mediterranean race, dwelling on all the shores of that sea. Yes, and between these two, the race of the mountains. And they are all one people, the wild Kurds, and the peoples of the Carpathians, and the Baltic Peninsula, and the mountaineers of the Alps, in the Tyrol, and in Salzburg, in Switzerland, and in Bavaria, and also the folk of Auvergne, and finally, the last member of this long, narrow series, the people of Brittany, short-skulled, small, and dark. Ah, oh, and the Jews, the Jews. What a granite pillar for the structure of this theory. A small fraction of them, blue-eyed and fair, the Nordic race. Hein was one of them. How often, dreaming and reflecting, had he observed the poet's picture. Some riddle lay there, some strange mystery. But now he held that mystery fast. It was his own race, his very own. Then a far larger part were Mediterranean blood. Spinoza, da Costa, Tisrali, and finally the great masses, Alpine folk, hill people, ugly and short-skulled. He 
he quite lost himself in thought. Jacob shattered races like shards. With one laughing stroke, he obliterated the questions of the millenniums. It all stood out so clearly now before him, so clear and well-determined. Now that he had this intoxicated faith, how had he come by it at this very moment? How had these old songs come to him from across the sea? Songs that he had not sung for many years. And where did this strange feeling come from that the home of these songs must be here? in the hollows of these mountains, no less than the caverns on the shores of Brittany. These songs that were so melancholy, solitary, full of yearning, like this race of the mountains, fanatic, fantastic, inclined to ecstasy. Oh yes, Tom and Genzo knew them well, these countrymen. Jacob stood up, a chaotic light flickering in his eyes. He stepped to the table, filled a glass to the brim, and emptied it. Sighing, he put it back. Ah, the devil, is there no longer any wine that will make me drunk? He drew out a card case and took a small folded paper from it. He unfolded it carefully and shook the contents of fine white powder into the wine and at intervals, testing it carefully with his tongue, he emptied this glass full too. He sat down, closed his eyes, rested his elbows, and laid his head in his hands, slowly, like the pendulum of an old clock, his body swayed to and fro. Finally, he got up, sighing deeply. He went out with dragging steps. For a moment, he stood on the steps. Then he walked down through a lake. A cool but gentle wind fanned his face. And suddenly, without transition, the clear picture dissolved before his eyes, yielded to a chaotic sea of flaming fog. A hot wave of blood raced through his temples, rising in short, rhythmic beats. It raged through his body, through his legs and arms, to the very tips of his toes, and fingers, this glow, this infernal glow. He expanded his chest, breathed deeply, and stretched out his arms. Jacob turned around without moving from the spot. Above, in the third window, he saw a faint glimmer of light.